Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And today we're going to look at a classic episode of Tech Stuff that originally published on May 13th, 2013, and it is titled The Big Deal About Little Generators. This is all about a hypothetical sort of technology, nanogenerators. Uh, nanotechnology is a fascinating one. It's also pretty complicated to talk about, but Lauren Vogelbaum and I try to break it down in this classic episode. So enjoy. So i uh, got a little topic I want to talk about today. Very little. Tiny, in fact. You might call it nano. Yes. In fact, we would because that's the topic. Yeah. The technology. Everybody, uh, everybody's doing nano. Yeah, everyone is. And uh, depending on who you talk to, it's either going to destroy the world or rescue it. Yeah. So um, what's the big deal, so to speak? Um, such a small thing. The big deal is that it's a very, very little deal. Yeah. In fact, uh, one billionth of a deal. Yeah. Or so a, a meter. A, a nanometer is one billionth of a meter. And uh, to give you an idea of how tiny this is, the average human hair is 100 micrometers in diameter. Now, a micrometer is 1,000 nanometers, so that means that the average human hair is 100,000 nanometers in diameter. should point out that that's average. I've seen a number of numbers. Yeah, it's usually between 60 and 120. That's normally, that's the average I normally see, but 100, it's fair enough to say so. Yeah, some people have very fine hair, but we're kind of splitting hairs now, aren't we? Oh, gee. Uh, You walked right into that one. (laughs) So... We're talking about things on this tiny, tiny scale. Now, we're not talking about the atomic scale, because that's actually smaller than the nanoscale. Wow. Yeah, because an atom is about, an atom, when you take the entire atom into account, the average atom is about 0.1 nanometers in diameter. That's pretty teeny. So it's one-tenth of a, of a nanometer. That's the atomic scale. We're getting pretty close to the atomic scale. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you were to talk about the nucleus of an atom. Do you want to know how big that is? No. How, I mean, yes. How big? Of course, is. you want to know how big it is. Pled, jeez, I, I, I thought I had you trained. I, I tripped. It is point zero 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 one nanometers wide. Good grief! That's just the nucleus. So when you when you strip away the electron shell, it's tiny indeed. But anyway, nanoscale. We're talking about things on this really tiny scale. Uh, building machines that are. On this scale, usually people say between 1 and 100 nanometers is kind of within the nanoscale range. Right. Um, building not just machines, but but really specific machines that can actually potentially change the world. And um, it's, it's pretty phenomenal to think of building anything on that small a scale. You can't even look at these things with a light microscope because they're so tiny. Because the, the wavelength for visible light... Uh, on the small scale of it, over on the violet spectrum, that's about 400 nanometers for a wavelength. So we're talking about having to use things like scanning, uh, tunneling microscopes to look at the nanoscale. Mm-hmm. Now, these are special microscopes that emit a small charge, electric charge, and then it interprets the data, sends it to a computer, and you look at an image on a computer screen. So you're not even really looking at the physical thing. You're looking at a, a computer image uh, representation of that thing. Right, right. So if, if nanotechnology is that small, mm-hmm. how do you make it? 
Because, okay. you know, there are a lot of people who talk about things on the nanoscale, like, uh, you know, computer processor chips uh, using nanotechnology, uh, nanorobots, which I'm told you might know something about. A little bit, you know, uh, so to speak. <laughs> you know, all kinds of things. How are you building these tiny, tiny things if you can't even really see them, if you're depending on a machine to do it for you to be able to look at them? That's a tricky question. I'll, I'll, there are two different ways. All right. There's the, the top-down approach, which is where you actually... Drop stuff on it from above? Not quite. Oh. But you, you build each component, and you then put everything together. It's, it's kind of like the classic way you build anything, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you would use a top-down approach to build, say, a car. You know, you build the frame, and then you attach various things to the frame. I'm talking like I know anything about cars. Um, so, That's a different podcast. Yeah, it's a different podcast. And Scott is way better at it than I am. <laughs> so the other way is the bottom-up approach. This is interesting. This is where you're actually building things kind of um, like you're growing them almost. Mm-hmm. Like you're growing machines, um, and you're doing it atom by atom, molecule by molecule. And... Uh, not really sure which way it's going to go. This is an early, early silent science, even though it's been around for a couple of decades. We're still, you know, just barely in the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. So we'll see which method ends up being the, the prevalent one. Um, but there are people working on it on either end, so to speak. And to give you an idea of how possible this is in 1990. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about almost 20 years ago. Uh, there was an IBM scientist named Don Eigler who led a team um, who demonstrated that they could manipulate individual atoms. And they used a, a, a scanning tunneling microscope to move atoms to spell IBM. I am so not shocked. Yeah, so you can actually, there are pictures of this on the internet. If you Google, <laughs> you know, IBM scanning tunneling microscope, uh, you can find pictures of this where you see the image where each dot it represents an, a separate atom. Mm-hmm. So they actually use the atoms to spell the word. Well, in, in 2004, again, IBM scientists are kind of leading the research in this. Uh, they were in Zurich, and they, they showed that they were able to change the charge state of individual atoms by adding or removing electrons from an individual atom. Wow. Yeah. So, again, they used a, uh, a scanning telling microscope, and they had a charged point on the tip of that microscope, which it comes to such an incredibly fine point that it can do these things. It can remove an electron from one atom and, and put it onto another. Mm-hmm. So we have the technology to manipulate individual atoms. Now we have to get to the point where we can build molecular structures that work as tiny machines. Right. All right, and there are a couple different ways we can look into that. Uh, one of the really popular things that people have been talking about recently are carbon nanotubes. Have you heard of these? Oh, yeah. 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 Uh, it's the stuff that's supposed to you know, do everything. Everything you've ever heard of, essentially, carbon <laughs> nanotubes can apparently do. Well, they're, they're such a versatile structure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, very resilient. Yep. Very yeah. tough. Yeah. It actually all depends on how you, how you roll the, yeah, how you roll the tube. So uh, carbon nanotubes, the way you create a carbon nanotube in general, I'm, I'm way oversimplifying here, but you take a sheet of carbon atoms. Mm-hmm. All right. They form molecular structure where it looks very like, uh, it looks like a series of hexagons. 
Mm-hmm. And what you then do is you roll this into a tube. You roll the sheet into a tube. And depending on the angle you use, when you roll it into a tube, that uh, dictates the the um, the properties the carbon nanotube will have. Right. So you know that, of course, graphite is composed of carbon, as are diamonds, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. But these two materials are have very different properties. Graphite's very soft. It's opaque. Uh, diamonds, not so soft. <laughs> uh, usually pretty clear. But the reason why they're different is because of the way these molecules are arranged. Same right. thing with carbon nanotubes. So if you arrange them a specific way by rolling the sheet in a specific direction, you can create a material that's hundreds of times stronger than steel and six times as light. Wow, what could what could possibly be a problem with with doing this? <laughs> well, yeah, the problem, as you pointed out, is it's very expensive. It's there's no easy way to do it. There's yeah. no easy, efficient way right now that we could do it on a mass scale. So right. it can be done. It's just going to be done in very small amounts, like on the nanoscale amounts, and it's being done in laboratories. And it's going to take several years for that to move from the laboratory to the production room. Yeah. And um, when it does, then we're going to start seeing lots and lots of stuff with carbon nanotubes in it. We, we see some already. Right. There are some products that use carbon nanotube technology already, but it's not on the scale that the, the, you know, the future of nanotechnology kind of promises us. But I've seen things like everything from uh, a Spider-Man type suit made out of carbon nanotubes because if you roll them a certain way, they work very like a gecko's skin. You could mm. climb walls and things with this stuff, which I Great. think would be pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, I've got one on back order. So anyway, um, <laughs> so that's kind of giving you the the lowdown on on where we are now. And and you can find technology that does incorporate things on the nanoscale. In fact, you're probably using one right now. To really? listen to us. <laughs> really? Yeah, because if you're using any sort of device that has a microchip, mm-hmm. chances are you've got a, a transistors on that microchip that are on somewhere in the nanoscale. I mean, if you have a, a, a recent computer, then it's definite. You know, as long as it's not, I guess, a uh, netbook. Right. You know, if you have one that has a powerful microprocessor, you're talking about transistors that are only a, you know, a few dozen nanometers wide. So, for example, Intel's uh, uh, iCore 7, I believe, are, what, 45 nanometers wide, I think? Yes, except it's Core i7. Oh, thank you. I'm just remembering. Yeah, I I should have said Nahalem. (laughs) I wrote about it as the Nahalem. But, yes, uh, those are are like, like 45 nanometers wide. I mean, you're talking about stuff that's already out on the market that's at this scale. Hey guys, before we continue this discussion about nanotechnology, let's take a tiny little break to thank our sponsors. I was uh, looking at applications of nanotechnology, mm-hmm. and uh, I found an article on, on CNET that, um, in which they were talking about using your voice to charge your cell phone. And uh, apparently, in order to do this, they use they would they would use I should say wood they would use uh, barium titanate crystals, which are twenty three nanometers wide. And to do that, it actually creates piezoelectricity. Ah, yes. It transfers uh, transfers it transfers uh, physical energy into electrical energy. I core seven. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Karma. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty neat to imagine that, you know, these crystals that are, are, you know, in the teens or not teens, but in the 
dual digit nanometers size. You know, that's wow. Nanometers. Nanometers. Too. Nanometers. Nice. So, um, so piezoelectric. That that essentially means that you're converting uh, kinetic energy into uh, electricity, or vice versa. Yeah. And so, then, oh no, I, I was just going to say this is the same sort of stuff you you have in things like microphones and speakers, that kind of mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. where it's converting uh, uh, w- uh, one form of energy into another. Right. And uh, crystal. There are certain crystals that can do this, like quartz, that uh, that have this property innately. Dilithium, tilium. Yeah. Anyway, um, and then there are the nanorobots, which are great for, you know, everything. Oh, sure. I read this, this article uh, yeah. written by, you know, this Jonathan Strickland guy. Yeah, I, and, I, uh, I vaguely remember writing that. <laughs> it's, been a, it's been more than a year now. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so nanorobots. Um, All kinds of medical uh, applications for those. Yeah. Uh, here's, the, here's the interesting thing about nanorobots. Um, they don't exist. Well, they more don't. Or less. Yeah, we're pretty much in the micro stage right now. Yeah. To be to be really fair, <laughs> but assuming that we ever get down to the nano size and are able to build nano size robots, the the applications are pretty amazing from mm-hmm. a medical standpoint. Oh sure. Um, for example, let's say that you have a disease that's affecting a very specific part of your body. And let's say the normal way to treat this disease would be that you would have, you would take, you know, in medication. Surgery? Well, I'm thinking medication, really. Okay. But we can get to surgery, too, in a minute. Um, so let's say that it would normally be that you would either get a shot or take some uh, medicine orally or whatever. You would have to wait for that medicine to make its way through your system uh, and to eventually affect the infected area. Right. Okay. So the medicine's already getting diluted through your bloodstream. It's taking time for it to reach the infected area. It takes time for it to to uh, take effect at the area. Right. And so the whole recovery rate is slower than it would ideally be. Right. Now with a nanorobot, theoretically, you could direct it, or if you could find a way of making it autonomous, it could direct itself to the infected area and deliver a much smaller payload of medication directly to the infected area. So for one thing, you're not going to have the the side effects that you might have experienced through a larger dose of medication because the dose is much, much smaller. For another, the application is immediate to the infected area. So you're talking about it being much more efficient and having a smaller impact on the patient's overall uh, health. Right. So that's that's an ideal situation. Now, for surgery, as you were uh, pointing out, that's also a possibility. You could create nanorobots that would have things like laser cutters that would essentially act like a little scalpel, but they would be the incredibly precise, far more precise than any human would be with a scalpel because they're on the nanoscale. You're talking right. about something so small that it's – you know, blood cells are dwarfing it. So, <laughs> but it could be an incredibly precise tool. And granted, you think, well, with a device that small, how could it really be useful? A lot of these future projections suggest that you would not have just one of these little nano robots mm-hmm. working. They would there would be thousands, perhaps millions of them working together at the same time, and uh, then you'd have to find a way of getting them out, or right. potentially. You would have nanorobots in you all the time, and they could even act as a preventive measure and keep you healthy uh, and head off any problems before they could really start even uh, uh, bringing up symptoms. Yeah, you were saying uh, in the article that um, they could be used to do things like break up blood clots or yep. you know kidney stones. 
Oh, man. <laughs> and they say breaking up is hard to do. You know, as, as someone who has suffered from kidney stones, i got to tell you, I would love to have had some, some robots. robots. Yeah. If nothing else, then just to start, have someone specific I could scream at um, instead of just the the uh, the directionless screaming that I did while I actually had them. We'll be right back with some more big ideas about tiny technology in just a moment after this quick break. Now, there are some big problems that we have to overcome first. We have to be able to create um, power systems on that scale, mm-hmm. like something to power these robots. So we're talking about batteries and capacitors that are have to be incredibly tiny, um, and that's that's a big challenge. Now, some doctors have uh, and engineers have got around that by creating robots that that propel themselves, uh, or actually they don't really propel themselves. They are propelled externally. Um, there's one that used uh, MRI machine, and you would use the 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 magnets and the MRI really to direct the robot. Mm. So you could actually, you know, you kind of the the robot really is was more passive. But you could direct it to a specific spot uh, within an artery system. Now, I should point out that the scientists who did this did it with a pig. Um, they were not doing human testing, but it worked. Hey, went through the pig's uh-huh. arteries. So you know, that's uh, it's nothing to sneeze at. No, so that's true. Uh, actually, I was reading about a, a completely different application of nanotechnology that was sort of fascinating. Um, Jennifer Lowell uh, was blogging about it for uh, for CNET. And uh, she was talking about the possibility that you could use nanotech to alter food on the microscopic scale. Mm. Um, she actually was quoting Steve Bogan of The Guardian. Um, they were talking about uh, essentially how you could, if you had a, a food that to which you were allergic, uh, you could maybe make alterations to it so that it would pass from your body without being a problem. That'd be interesting. Um, the trick is, you know, you could... Uh, you could have problems with people who don't particularly like genetically modified food. You know, sure. there are a lot of people that uh, are kind of creeped out by the Franken food. Yep. Um, and you're talking about messing with things down again on a very, very tiny level. Uh, so that's pretty. That's pretty significant. Um, but Bogan also mentioned the possibility that packaging could be made um, to where the nanotechnology inside the food packaging could sniff out when. You know, the food started to give off gassing as it was decomposing and would change color. So you go, oh, well, you know, this thing, it's starting to turn brown. We need to toss it out without even, you know, sniffing it or, uh, you know, sticking your finger on it and going, I don't know, it feels kind of weird. Yeah, that would have uh, prevented many, many memorable nights that I've had in my past. Yeah, I'm sure. Anyway, so... uh, (laughs) And and to talk a little bit more about uh, building these robots, one of the one of the things that scientists are working on is to try and create specific kinds of nano robots called assemblers. Assemblers. Yeah. Now assemblers do what you would think they do. They assemble other nano machines. Uh-huh. So they could assemble other assemblers. So then you have a self replicating nano robot. Do you see where there might be a problem with this? I feel it's edging gradually toward the singularity. Right. So we're talking about the potential for nanorobots to replicate themselves at such an incredible rate. And remember, as soon as one gets replicated, it can start replicating. And then the ones it replicates can start replicating. So it's exponential growth, right? Um, There's a scenario called gray goo. Gray uh-huh. goo is this this doomsday scenario where nanorobots 
in order to build more nanorobots, they have to create it out of something. You know, they're not building it out of nothing. So what they're doing is they're, they're in this scenario anyway, it's taking carbon out of the environment and then building robots with them. Mm-hmm. So, Except we're made out of carbon? Right. Well, everything, a lot of stuff's made out of carbon on, on our planet, turns out. So the idea here would be that the, the robots would start to consume all the carbon in an effort to build more robots. And, of course, since it's exponential, it gets faster and faster every passing second. So this doomsday scenario has the entire world just turning into this writhing mass of gray goo as nanorobots take over everything. I'm totally singing the Sorcerer's Apprentice in my head. Sleep well tonight. Yeah, I'm glad that we were able to take such a rosy idea and go there with it. Well, I mean, it's it's obviously a worst case scenario, but uh, there are a lot of, first of all, we're decades away from getting there. Second of all, there's no guarantee that that's what would happen if we even were able to create the nanotech uh, assemblers. So I think we don't have to worry just yet. When the singularity comes, then we'll start worrying. All right. So we got about 20 years. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed this classic episode of Tech Stuff. It was a lot of fun to research. I always love the sort of science fiction-y kind of topics that we can look into. If you guys have any suggestions for future Tech Stuff topics, let me know. Reach out on Twitter or on Facebook. We use the handle TechStuffHSW for both. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.